Audi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. You're listening to the Big Travel Podcast, exploring life stories through travel. And I know you're going to find this episode a fascinating listen. Our guest today is Londoner Emdad Rahman, a man who, although he has a day job helping kids stay in school, dedicates pretty much all of his spare time to raising money for charity, work that sees him building wells in Ghana, helping at orphanages in Morocco, and delivering aid to refugees in Calais. As a practicing Muslim, he tells a story about his first trip to Mecca, which I promise will make you shiver. The son of Bangladeshi immigrants, he grew up in Tower Hamlets, a London borough of huge contrasts, being home to the relatively new shiny towers of the financial district of Canary Wharf, and also to the narrow market streets of the old commercial heart of the city. Please welcome M. Dad Rahman. For the last few years, I've actually been involved in doing charitable endeavours and hikes, running, and travelling now to carry out aid deployments in various different countries. So tell me about the aid deployments. This year, we did an aid deployment to Ghana, and it was brilliant because we raised between fifteen and £20,000. Me and a few friends were local coaches, local lads actually, grown up together. And we were invited to go out there to Ghana. So we were a 30-minute flight out from Accra. So we weren't in Accra, in the affluent part of Accra, in a nice guest house. The very next day, we flew out to a place called Tamale. And uh, we spent the next five, six days there. And it was absolutely brilliant. I came up with a catchphrase for the people that, through my interaction with the Ghanaian people, first and foremost, they're absolutely beautiful people. That was my first experience there. There's this genuineness about them and the affection about them. Whether it was someone who was driving us, you know, a driver spending a day with us, the people in the village, their elders, men, women, they're just absolutely beautiful people. That's the first thing that struck me. The second thing is I came up with this phrase and I said, they have nothing, but they have everything. So as soon as we came out from the airport, we was at Tamale, we were straight into action. We took a 30-minute ride right into the sticks. We visited a village there. We met with the men, the women. The women are very, very strong. But I suppose they have to be, considering the roles they have to play. So part of that visit to the village was a water well that we had installed over the last few years where we'd raised money for a deep water well. Not one of those hand pumps. The hand pumps are good, but as you can imagine, if they're communal, people are using them with various degrees of strength and force. 24 hours, 48 hours, if you're lucky, they last a week. So they've been investing in deep water wells. So we'd invested in one. So we saw it at first hand. The women came over. We actually joined the women as well. 
they're not shy at all, which made it very easy. Sometimes from a cultural point of view, it's the interaction can be a bit difficult, you know, especially when they're very shy. And it could be for religious purposes, it could be for cultural reasons. But they were really, really friendly. Some of them, I've got pictures of myself carrying the water. Ten steps was enough for me. They were so heavy. There was a cyclist who turned up. I cycled with him for a little bit, carrying water with him. It was like David Beckham had just suddenly turned up. The welcome was absolutely spellbinding. We rounded off with an audience with the chief who greeted us, talked to us and made prayers for us as well. I'm very fortunate that the last few years I've been able to travel to various countries. For, for example, if we look at it right from the grassroots, I've travelled to Scotland where I've climbed Ben Nevis for charity. I've gone to Wales where we climbed Snowdon, Scaffold Pike in England. So all these wonderful sites and experiences became possible through my charity work. I have also now booked my tickets to fly to Bangladesh in October, during the October half term. We are planning now to raise £15,000 to travel out to Bangladesh and it's a big project. So we'll go to Chittagong, we will go to Dhaka, we'll meet with the Rohingya people. We are supporting an orphans project, an orphans school project. We are also delivering sports coaching and that's a great way and I think it's a unique way and a great way in as well. Uh, did I see you cycling around Morocco or racing in Morocco, doing sort of run in Morocco? Yes. For the last two years I've actually booked myself onto the Marrakesh Half Marathon. The great thing about that is I've, I've been to Morocco a few times now, twice for pleasure which included a football tour, which was very interesting because we had our local football players, of which I am the veterans player manager. The When I say veterans, I mean those who are over 35 and can't keep up with the younger players. So we call them the vets. We took a team out there to Morocco, to a place called Larache, where one of our teammates is actually from, his family are from. And we met with the local football dignitaries and the dignitaries and we played a game with the local team which very diplomatically finished 2-2. We went to fairs as well and we went to see the Blue Pearl. It's called Chef Shawi in Morocco. From fairs it took us about three hours by a minibus. It's like a wonder of the world. So you come to a seaside resort, it's a seaside town and all the worlds are painted. The way I'm describing it, I'm not doing it justice, but they're painted blue and it's absolutely brilliant. But whilst I was out there as, as well, I was introduced to some young children at an orphanage, which my friend had spoken to me about. And they were really, really young children. So between the ages of newborn to six and seven, there was actually an older boy there. I remember his name, Mohsin, his name was, you know, he didn't speak. So I Whilst I was there, I built up a report with him. In 2017, we went out there. On the first day, went and prayed because it's Friday. Friday is the for Muslims. I'm a practicing Muslim. For Muslims, is the most special day of the week. And during the lunchtime prayer, we have a special congregation which replaces the lunchtime duhr prayer. It's called Juma. It's known as the day of Juma. Fridays. So we had the good fortune of going to the Kutubiya Mosque in Marrakesh, praying there and listening to the sermon from the imam. After the prayer, I went to, I gave him a hug and I was very tempted to take a cheeky selfie with him. I didn't. How was going to the mosque in Marrakesh? Was it, I imagine it must be an incredible atmosphere. An incredible atmosphere. The acoustics, first and foremost, in the mosque are absolutely amazing. When we were walking from the hotel, because of the way the, the landscape is designed, everybody walks. It's almost like when you're walking to a football game, when everybody's heading in the same direction. Obviously on a spiritual level, the walk to the to the mosque is greater. People are randomly shaking hands, people randomly hug. 
They have separate entrances for men and women. Once you're there in the mosque, it's a very powerful atmosphere. Very, very powerful atmosphere. People uh, praying, people listening to the sermon. And then they actually perform the Friday prayer. And it, it was fantastic. I haven't experienced many moments like this. When I've been Makkah to Saudi Arabia, Makkah and Medina, that's obviously been the ultimate when it comes to prayers. But Qutubiya Mosque was something very, very special. I was going to ask you about Mecca. Um, what is it called? The Hajj? The, how do you the Hajj. It? The Hajj. The Hajj. So you, you have made your Hajj, is that the right way of doing yes. it? And yes. been to Mecca? Yes. How was that? It, I mean, it looks incredible. For a Muslim, it's the pinnacle. These, uh, I went in 2004 for the first time. I actually completed the Hajj. Me and my wife, my father, and a group were accompanying us. It was difficult and memorable at the same time because one of the rituals which you have to do is you symbolically stone the Satan. That's a big part of the rituals of the Hajj. Whilst on the day we were due to travel from a place called Mina where we were camped out, you walk it to where this ritual takes place. And what you tend to do is you pick up stones on the way and you drop them into a well-like structure. So it's symbolic. It reminisces the story of Abraham when he was ordered to sacrifice Ishmael. Satan whispered again and again, what are you doing? What are you doing? A lot of people, they become very, very emotional. So the objective is not to start. So people are chucking stones and hurling umbrellas and taking their footwear off because they actually feel like they're beating Satan. But it's wrong because that's not how it's meant to be. So during that year, that practice was still pretty much prevalent and the authorities had not got a grip on this even though it's very very dangerous the first warning sign i received when i was there was i was holding my wife shielding her and she felt me moving backwards now what happened was whilst we were traveling there advise you you already covered up with only two pieces of cloth and one of our group members had taken a rack sack with him an elderly gentleman so i offered to carry it for him just to help him out Whilst we were there, I felt somebody throttling me. So this rucksack behind me, and you've got to understand, it was a very dangerous situation for many, many years, for decades in fact, because if you fell, you were trampled because there's no way people could stop in time unless you were very quick to get on your feet. So it's an extremely hazardous situation. Hundreds of people have been killed and you can't stop the flow of humans because everybody's moving forward. And you understand there's hundreds of thousands at one time. There's millions during the Hajj, but during this time, there's hundreds of thousands of people who want to get it the ritual done now what they've done is after quite a few calamities they've created a one-way system over there so you go in you do your business and you walk out you and before it was you go in there people are stoning chucking do 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 and then they're coming back out so you're coming in and i'm coming out and we're clashing in the middle it was absolute chaos my wife turned around and she realized i was going under and she dragged me up so that was an experience in itself but overall the seven to ten days that we spent in in Makkah were beyond memorable on the day we were leaving the camp, I was the last one. Go and finish. I went to the loo and then I, we did the ablution ritual. And then I came back and everybody was ready. And my dad was like, we're waiting for you. I said, okay, we're ready to go. My dad said, no, sit down. He made me sit down. He got the group round in the tent and he said, look, I've just been to the toilet. And what people do is, when they're on the hajj, because they're carry, wearing two pieces of cloth, obviously they've got money and stuff with them. So people carry bespoke made money belts. So somebody had taken you off in the loo, completely done their business, walked out completely forgetting about it. So he said, I want to count it in front of witnesses. So we all sat down and my dad counted out £3,000 sterling and a few Saudi riyals. Oh, now we're there. So I said, okay, everybody relax. What I'll do, I'll go back to the toilet area. Maybe, hope, hopefully it's this one, if you found it there and... 
I was thinking to myself, I will eventually see somebody who's looking very perturbed and somebody will suddenly realize and they will come back and I thought, okay, that's a sign. So I was hanging around there for quite a while, good 10, 15 minutes. And then I saw a gentleman going up to another gentleman and the way they were talking to them, I thought, this is, this is the gentleman. As soon as I touched him on the shoulder, he said, you found my money. I said, come with me. So I took him back to the camp and it was quite funny because my dad did his whole interrogation. It was really funny. The way my dad was questioning him, I said, dad, it's him. He asked him, how much have you got inside there? The man got the figure complete. I said, dad, he's nervous. He's just been really stressed out. And then my dad said, one more question. And he said, have you got anything else in there? And the guy said, aha, there is a card in there, a business card for this hotel, which I stayed at when I was in Medina. My dad said, bingo. And then he gave him the money. The man took out two £50 notes and he gave it as a present to my dad. My dad said, I don't sell my good deeds. Eventually, he just dropped £50 at my dad's feet and he said, you do whatever you want. Give it to charity or leave it there, whatever. I can't walk away without giving you this. So this episode delayed us by 20 minutes. When we got to the stoning area, we saw people running out. We saw the army running in. We thought something's happened there. I think it was approximately 240, 250, 60 people died in that stampede, which we were heading towards. I came out and I said to my dad, your good deed delayed us by 20 minutes. What's to say we wouldn't have been in that stampede? We were delayed by 20 minutes. That actually made you me shiver. It's an incredible story. It's, a, it's an incredible it story. It's, it's, it saved our life because we were supposed to leave 20 minutes earlier. We would have been in that stampede. You know, we would have been there 20 minutes earlier. When I was there, I remember when I was falling under the weight, I could see blood stains here and there where the stampede had taken place. And we were thinking, my God, look what we've just avoided there. I've been back to Saudi Arabia subsequently a few times since for the, it's called Umrah. Some people call it the small Hajj. And people even go there on holiday, like they go and do the pilgrimage and they go and have a good time there. So we go there once every two years when we can afford it. When you say camp, what, what do you mean? Do people camp out in tents? When people go on the Hajj, some people may stay there for months on end. Some people may stay there for a few weeks. The actual days of Hajj are five. During this time, you travel from Mecca to Medina to a place called Muzdalifa to a place called Mina. And at certain locations, you actually stay in camps. So when you're in Mecca and Medina, for example, you've got your hotels whether it's a guest house, a humble guest house, or whether it's a five-star hotel. Traveling in between, you make do with tents. The Saudi authorities are very, very good in that regard. They, there's no expenses spared. They, when I say tents, I don't mean we go to Decathlon and we just pitch one up. They've got really good tents, actually. Really, really good tents, which actually stay up all year round because they leave it for the next Hajj. But it's quite an experience. So you could have a big tent when you're in there with a random group of 20, 30 people. You can have a small tent. It's a bit like outdoors living, but on a more spiritual level. So how much of your charity work? I know you work in soup kitchens in Tower Hamlets. You're a dementia friend. You Every time I see you on Facebook, you're abseiling up some wall or walking or campaigning or doing something wonderful for other people. How much of that will to do charity work and to help people is involved in your faith? That's a great question. For me, it's the the two go hand in hand. My faith plays a big part in what I do. I think my demeanor generally, my character generally is quite helpful without wishing to sound boastful because I do like to have a humble approach. What I do is I reaffirm to myself every time before I carry out a charitable act, whether it's just buying a homeless person coffee when I've come out of Tesco or somewhere or buying them a sandwich or whether it's doing something big like we did in Ghana, what I tend to do is I, I have a before, during and after moment. So I say to myself, I'm doing this for the right purposes. I'm not doing this to show off. I, I have to always say that. Even when I'm putting it on social media, I have to reaffirm to myself that you're not getting bigoted. Why are you getting bigoted about this? Why are you doing this? 
I'm putting it on social media because I have friends and family who, who are watching there. I've got nephews, nieces who are getting inspired. I have lots of students and young people I've mentored who are watching. But also I've received so many messages from people over the years who have just said, you've inspired us to take up charity work. You've inspired us to break down barriers between ourselves as communities, as races, as people. And for me, that's been the ultimate. And it's an intrinsic part of my faith. My faith encourages me. Actually, it exhorts me to do good, to forbid evil. If my neighbor is going hungry whilst I am eating and sleeping on a full stomach, I'll be held accountable. That's, that's an intrinsic part of my faith. So doing community work, I do enjoy helping people. I do enjoy making a difference. But it's further cemented and hardened by the fact that my faith also exhorts me to do so. You grew up in East London with a Bangladeshi family. And what was life like growing up in East London in the Bangladeshi community? Very, very interesting. My dad came to England in the 60s. My dad, my uncles. Just like a lot of Bangladeshi men, nobody had the intention to settle down in England. They came at the invitation of the government, which I'm proud to say they provided excellent and exemplary service in terms of their participation in the garments trade. The East End of London has always been a hotpot. So you had the French Huguenots, you had the Jewish community, and then the Bengali community took over. They learned their trade. My dad had, I think, three different governors of garment factories, and they were all Jewish. And he used to always say as we were growing up that if you want to see the best cut of cloth, it's from them. And he used to take me to Petticoat Lane where there was a suit maker, Stanley, his name was. I don't think he's alive now. He was even then he was very, very old. And he used to explain these things to me. But then my dad learned such a good trade from them that he himself was able to open his own garment trade. But it was very, very interesting growing up. When we were younger, we had slight identity issues. We had we did experience some racism. I didn't experience as much racism as other people, but for example on the estates I remember we had moments where, you know, being chased by dogs and being sworn at and now, looking back as a 41-year-old, sometimes I realised that there were sometimes that situations which involved racism could have been quite difficult for me. But overwhelmingly, when you look at the bigger picture, it was less. I had a friend called Kudusali. He was my classmate in primary school. He was a classmate of mine in secondary school for a while as well. And he was attacked. He's a, this, is a big, this is a big case. He actually lives near me now in Essex, a few roads away. But he was battered by seven people. I think it was seven people on Commercial Road, which is just down the road from where we're actually sitting now. And it was a huge case, huge case. The Asian Dub Foundation, they created a rap based on him, actually, and, you know, the subsequent riots. I didn't participate in the riots, but I remember the feeling of anger people felt. The incident divided communities. And then you had the people who were also opportunistic as well, who made capital out of a tragic situation. But overwhelmingly, it was great. We, you know, we had good memories. We, I had seriously decent teachers at primary school, secondary school. I went to local secondary school. Some of my teachers are still there. Miss Belgic Gale, she's still there. She's an assistant head now. For me, she was the ultimate. She made English so appealing to me. And when she used to comment on a book or a passage or a paragraph, she just made the subject so delicious. For me, it developed a love for writing and creative writing and poetry because of her. Something I find fascinating about you is that you're a football poet. Describe to me football poetry. <laughs> well, there's a few thousands of us across the globe. There's a poet's website called footballpoets.org and there's a few nerds like myself. There's a handful of us who are actually prolific. What we do is we write poetry on football. So it could be a memorable game, a memorable football player, the passing of a personality, football related. It could be 
a footballing incident, history, and I love it because I'm football crazy. It's just a great release. I've got probably 700 poems published on that website. The best thing about it is the British Library archives all our work, so we're actually doing a decent job, I reckon. For St George's Day, a good few years back, I created a poem which was published, it was recorded, it's actually on YouTube. I had my sons around me and I read it out. What we were trying to do is we were trying to reclaim the Union Jack from racists. So I did a poem about St George and I explained, but did you know St George wasn't even English? And he's not only your patron saint, he's actually patron saint of many, many countries, many foreign countries as well. So I did it using a footballing methodology. So it's a good way to get your message across sometimes as well. There was a football player called Dembaba who played for West Ham and Newcastle United. He opened a orphanage and school in Senegal. I met with him at an event, charitable event. I performed at the event. I performed two poems which I'd written about him, the charity and the players who were there as well. Published three books on it as well. Two of the books are on the World Cup itself. So what I did was, if a World Cup has got 50 games, for example, I did a poetic match report on each game, which is a bit sad to some people. If you're not a football fan, you'd probably be thinking, oh my God. So I did a poetic match-by-match report from game one until the final, and then I just published them. So the most recent one I did was the European Championships, which a few years back, which Portugal won. And with Ronaldo being the pin-up boy of football, put him on the cover. So I approached Human Relief Foundation and I said to them, you know what, you can have it for a year. So whatever money we make from that, it's all yours. We're about three months in. So we published about a thousand books and I've been sending them to friends. I say, look, I'm not making any money out of this. I've decided to give it to Human Relief Foundation for a year because we're doing a Ghana project and now we've got a Bangladesh project. I think that's really good. It's getting my work out there. It's going to people who are not even football fans because they're willing to pay £10 to have a signed copy and a picture because it's going to a charitable initiative. On the subject of football, you're chairman of Stepney FC, is that right? I am indeed. Tell me about Stepney FC. Stepney FC, this is, uh, this is our 25th year. Stepney Football Club, an amazing local club. We have enjoyed for many, many years. We've had a golden generation of players who have now reached vets status. As I mentioned earlier, 35 plus. We actually got relegated last year from the Big Boys League. And part of that was because of the younger legs there. In an open league, it's difficult when you reach our age and you're playing against teenagers who were just like racehorses. We had a chat, we decided, right, this is an end of an era. We've enjoyed two decades, over two decades of unprecedented success. It's now time for us to concentrate on the Vets League, where we're playing against people of our calibre, of our physical stature and age as well. So I'm club chairman. I'm also the player manager for the veterans and we are currently jointly top of the table and we're enjoying good success. There's challenges all the time but with Stepney Football Club, like I said, we travelled to Marrakesh. As a club, we played a tour game out there through Stepney Football Club. We were introduced to an orphanage in, in, in Marrakesh where we, we went and met the kids now as well and what we're introducing is now with the younger players coming in, taking over from these boys, after almost three decades of playing at the top, we want to get them involved in more charitable initiatives. So the team are actually planning to go to Utrecht next month. So they're going to spend a few days in Holland playing an international football tournament there and stay there for four or five days. So we do like to travel and we've got some travel plans there as well. There are pockets of deprivation, severe deprivation in Tower Hamlets and 
some of the richest people in the world, with Canary Wharf as well. Did I hear you say once that Stepney FC was set up to help disadvantaged kids or to get kids off the street? Totally. When they started off Stepney Football Club in Stepney, it was designed to engage with people, young people, who were difficult to reach, who were having social problems, social mobility problems, who were struggling academically, who had issues at home, who didn't have a place to go to, who may have been having relationship problems with their families, with their elders, parents, peers. It wasn't just a football club. Football was a medium to get them involved, physically get them active at the same time. And as chance would have it, that cohort who came together, they seemed to be blessed with supreme footballing talent. If you look at that cohort, they have actually done really, really well. There's the, majority, the vast majority of them are well established in their professional lives and they're doing extremely well. And now it's time for us now the generation to pass it on to the next ones and say, right, it's your turn now to try and emulate. And I've always said as chairman to the younger boys, I've always said that if you can achieve 50% or even 25% of what these boys have achieved, not only on the football pitch, but the way they've turned their lives around and become role models, then you would have done fantastically well. You were recently in Calais working with the refugees. What were you doing there? So Sister Christine Frost, she's one of my mentors. She's well known as the Angel of Poplar. She's been operating in Tower Hamlets. So she's been living and working in Tower Hamlets with the local community since the 60s. She set up an organisation in the 60s called Neighbours in Poplar, which is carrying out amazing work. Initially set up to help local elderly people who were bereaved or lonely or just struggling generally. And even if they weren't struggling, it was there to provide people with an outlet. Come along, have a party, have a sing-song, have a communal lunch together. Let's revive this community spirit. And Sister Christine just got from strength to strength. She's in her late 70s. I go to Calais with her once every few months. Sister Christine emails the organisations working out there like Care for Calais, for example. And she says, do you need anything specific? And they provide a list. So last week when we went, I remember we took bottles of milk with us. We just deliver aid. And we. the last visit we did, which was last week, it was really interesting because we not only unloaded and helped out a little bit at the warehouse for Care for Calais, but we went to meet a priest called Brother Johan, Brother John, as Sister Christine calls him, but he's a Belgian who is running. It's not a monastery. It's like a guest house for youngsters who are there as migrants and refugees or who have been split from their families so how he was telling us how the numbers have increased it was in a really affluent middle class looking neighborhood so one of the first questions i asked him was do you face any difficulties from your neighbors and he said it's never been a huge problem so i've got to give credit to the french we don't see them as that tolerant but my communication with contact with brother johan proved otherwise he said it was difficult. You have to understand this is their community and all of a sudden they've got strangers walking about. People would be worried. But he said generally they've been absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. And we obviously run a tight ship. You know, I said, do you have a code of conduct? Do you address this with the people? Because some, sometimes people just don't know any better. What could be perfectly acceptable in somebody's culture back in their home could be complete boo-boo here. So I gave him some advice. As I said, these are things that you need to consider because you don't want lack of preparation or lack of advice jeopardizing the fantastic work that you're doing. And in the afternoon, we went spent time in a day center where we helped out with textile workshops. I realized I'm a very good Connect Four player. It got very competitive. I said, refugees, migrants, it doesn't make any difference to me. I'm going to beat you. <laughs> so we played games with them. 
We spent some time with them, chatting to them, drawing, doing art with some of the younger refugees who were there. It's lovely and, that uh, they've got facilities like that for them. But what is the situation? Because the camps are no longer there. Am I right? Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. The sad thing is that I suppose something is better than nothing. Lisa, there's, they've got facilities there. But that day centre, for example, where you, it closed at four o'clock. So where do these people go after that? It's not uncommon for people to just come to the day centre and sleep there for a few hours because they've, they've just been out on the streets. It's been too cold to do anything else. One guy, he told me he was having a cigarette outside. He said he sleeps in bushes and it just baffled me, thinking, how does he spend the rest of the day? And then there's others, people there just charging their phones. So, so you know, somebody might have a shower. Somebody's enjoying doing some art therapy. There's a youngster there. Sister Christine pointed out to me, he'd drawn a piece of art which said, the only thing I have is hope. So that was quite moving. So although they've got facilities, they're not brilliant. There's not many places which are putting them up long term. Like we said, the day centre is a day centre. What happens to them after four o'clock? Where do they go? Where do they sleep? People have a lot of prejudice. And some, as in any cultures, any religion, some of that, like you said, is going to be understandable you know people if there's a lot lot of poverty there's going to be crime that goes hand in hand in that not necessarily always does it upset you these burgeoning maybe in the in the last sort of 10-15 years or so the prejudice towards Muslims I know you've spoken on social media about feeling a little bit vulnerable looking as you do like a, a Muslim male cycling around the streets of London does it upset you do you feel vulnerable and and what can we do about that I feel vulnerable at all times but I have the personality and the attitude that I'm not going to sit there and feel sorry for myself. Never have. I have. There's been instances where in a social setting, for example, somebody's made a comment and then two things I could do. I could ignore them, which I've done in the past. But what's changed in me is in the last, probably since 9-11 or 7-7, I was there. Since 7-7, I've become more defensive. I can't help you. I've become more defensive. So if I perceive that somebody is speaking ill of me, or saying something about me, I find it very difficult to just sit there and, and just grit my teeth. So what I do is I usually challenge them, usually in a nice manner. At the end of the day, the vast majority of us, we have the same woes, the same strifes, the same worries, and we just want to get on with life. But we are getting tarnished by things which are actually beyond our control. Somebody screamed at me in my day job once. They said, you should do more. And I said, sit down and tell me what I should do. He said, you don't know anything about me. And tell me what I should do. I'm not trained by the government in conflict resolution. I don't work for any aid agencies. What do I do? What do I do? And then I've been very angry sometimes. And I've gone up. Abu Hamza, I remember years ago, he sent a bunch of heavies round to beat me up for a comment I made. But he sent a couple of boys. They phoned me up. They said they will come down. I was volunteering at a local newspaper and they came over and I realised one of my friends, his younger brother was there and um, so it, it could have been quite bad. He saw me and he said, oh, we can't, we, we, can't, we can't be doing this. So I've had incidents like that, but I've compared people like him, for example, just using him as an example, and Tommy Robinson as the same. I said, you guys are the two faces of the same coin. They're just the same. They thrive on hatred, on, on dividing people. So it's difficult. It's, it's very, very difficult. I do worry about my parents. I do worry about my siblings. I do worry about the kids. You know, how would they react? Constantly worried about my wife. You know, so somebody's going to pull your headscarf off. Somebody's going to do this. Somebody may push you. I've had, when I cycle 
I get the odd occasional comments where I can hear somebody calling me a terrorist from a lorry and I'm thinking, that I can handle whilst I'm cycling. But what if somebody just accidentally nudges me when they're on a truck or a lorry? Oops. And then I've, I've got severe injury. So I used to be very naughty before. I used to have no helmet. So I've invested in a helmet now after years of cycling. But these things may never happen, but they make you paranoid because of your contact with a minority of people. Travelling does. I've seen, for example, British people, they travel a lot. I explain to a lot of the youngsters I work with, through travel, people's experiences are broadened, you know, the horizons are broadened. If they have any prejudice, they self-tackle that. You know, Their emotions change, it educates them, increases their knowledge. Travelling does really help. And again, what we can do is we, as a community... This is my solution. We as a community must put our prejudices aside. Tolerance, understanding and building bridges is, is key going forward. I think the vast majority of people do realise they will take an individual at face value. I would love to say that tolerance is spreading, but it's not. Because if we look around, even Britain and Europe and all over the world now as well, people are reacting differently to change. People of colour, you know, it could be anything. You could, it doesn't just have to be... You being a Muslim, but people of colour, people who have disabilities, people you know because of their orientation, sexual orientation, whatever you call it, people to, people don't like. And even in 2018, we we're just seeing constant reports and statistics which are showing that there's a worrying rising trend in hate crimes. I'm worried because you've got to get off to mosque. I think you might have missed sure, it. No, no, that's fine. Do you go three times a day? Well, we pray five times a day. I go to the mosque when I can. On Friday, it's compulsory. That one. At lunchtime, timeless is easy because there's a mosque everywhere. So I've got one last question, which throws everyone, so you can have a think about it. It's about music, because to me, travelling and music go hand in hand. On your travels, wherever you may have been, if you can pinpoint a moment where music has meant a lot to you, where it's given one of the, one of those wow moments when you've been travelling, what would that music or that song be? I think it's a very easy one for me. I don't generally listen to a lot of music. I listen to the radio a lot. But I'm a huge Oasis fan since my teenage years. Don't Look Back in Anger, uh, when I went to Marrakesh first time round. Big, huge fan of the Gallagher brothers anyway. You know, they can't do any wrong for me. Supremely talented. And, uh, but um, we were at a place called Eswaria in Morocco. It was a seaside town, fish, fishing town, lots of boats. And I had a quiet moment when I was able to get away from the crew. And I, I wasn't even actually listening to it on my device. I was listening to it on a friend's device. And it resonated really well. And I thought to myself, this is really, it has really shaped me because although I'd been listening and I'd heard it so many times that it's my, probably my favourite Oasis song, it was that precise moment just sitting there on a blue boat overlooking the dockyard, you know, the fisherman's boat, where it really drummed home to me the fact that it's true. I don't want to look back in anger. I don't want to look back on my life I might not live another 10 years. I might not live another 10 minutes, but I don't want to look back on my life at any stage and just think, you know what? I've restricted myself and I've held myself back because of anger. And me, myself, just like every other person work, walking on this planet, has a right to be angry over something. But we as human beings, we find something to be angry about, even if we don't have something to be. But it was at that moment that I decided that my philosophy will be that I'm... 
I will get angry. This is, you know, I, I swear at a lot of people when I'm cycling, when they're irresponsible, I always get shunted by people. At least once every three weeks, somebody may, you know, might go bumper to bumper with me. And you, you swear at them because you just think, you know what, I could have been under your car. But generally, that's helped me. The Gallagher brothers have helped me, thinking, right, it's done. I've shouted, I've done it. I've played sports, I've had a, you know, I've shouted at my sons over something I've been in disagreement with, whether it's their homework or not tidying up their bedroom or just getting into trouble at school. That's done. I gave up with the ill feeling long, long time ago. Thanks to the Gallagher brothers. Thank you so much. That was so enjoyable. Really, really, really good to speak to you. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Coming up in the next couple of weeks, we have award-winning travel blogger Adam Grossman from Travels of Adam and Dame Helena Morrissey, a woman who's changing the face of big city finance and also happens to be a mother of nine. Yes, that is nine. Do join us for a new episode of the Big Travel Podcast every Tuesday. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.